I'm here with Everett Fritz, uh, the Executive Director of St. Andrew Missionaries and author of several books now. And one of your recent ones, though, is about the art of forming young disciples. Uh, tell us about what your basic approach to youth ministry. Yeah, um, I, I uh, well, thank you, Father, for having me on the mm -hmm. show, first of all. And, uh, it, you know, I've been working in youth ministry for 12 years, uh, pro professionally, or at least uh, as an apostolate. And, um, and for the first four or five years, I was focused on building up large youth groups. And uh, from the outside looking in, my youth ministries looked like the uh, very successful, the largest in the diocese, et cetera, et cetera. And I had all the different pieces that um, I believed I needed, you know, large budget. I had, a, eventually I had a youth ministry staff and a great volunteer team, et cetera. And um, there was a moment when I realized that uh, I looked at a picture on my desk of a group of 100 teenagers that I'd taken to a big youth conference and I counted how many kids in that in that uh, picture were still practicing their faith and it was like 10 out of 100. Um, so this started for me, and it's a story that I talk about in my book, The Art of Forming Young Disciples. It started for me a process of really reevaluating ministry because I, I realized that I, you know, a 10% success rate in terms of making lifelong disciples of Jesus Christ um, was not something I was satisfied with. And what, what I started to identify is that um, basically that there were two common factors for uh, whether a young person would continue practicing their faith into their adult life. And the first was whether they had been individually mentored um, in their faith and they had a, a, an adult in their life that could witness to them what the Christian life looked like and inspire them and make that look attractive. And the second was whether they had community, whether they had peers that could hold them accountable and, and grow together in their faith. And I thought, well, that's a a much easier way of doing youth ministry than doing all the different programs and programming that I was doing. Because if you shrink ministry down to j just those two factors, um, good youth ministry can look like a, a conversation around a coffee shop. And so that's really what I started to experiment with and have been working with for the last seven years is my youth ministries. We still do some large youth group gatherings from time to time and we go to the conferences and retreats and et cetera. But the core of, the, of our weekly meetings is that rather than having one large group meeting, I have uh, like 10 to 15 small groups that meet on a weekly basis. And there's a, a, a couple of adults in the parish that are uh, work with about five to eight teenagers for a period of four years, and they meet in living rooms, or they meet in coffee shops, um, or someplace that is uh, attractive and what I call the turf of a teenager. So it, it, the church is not it doesn't feel like a teenager's turf, but like their school environment does, their home environment does, their local hangouts, and what the groups focus on are. Um, study of the scriptures, they focus on learning how to pray, they focus on building community with one another and having fellowship with one another, and really just living out the Christian life. Um, and I have found uh, it's really flipped my youth ministries from having like a 10% success rate of, of lifelong discipleships and now following these young people into college and adult life, I found as much as an 80% success rate in terms of those who are in these small discipleship groups, uh, they continue to practice their faith into okay. their adult life. And like, so what would the mechanics of a meeting look like? Um, generally, we, we start with a connect exercise and when we first start meeting we might actually have like a like a an icebreaker to 
get everybody talking. It's not like a silly game like you would see at a youth group, but rather there's it's an exercise to get discussion started. Nowadays, what because age group the, are we talking? Uh, for me, the best age group to work with is high school. Mm -hmm. um, I'm currently experimenting with these small groups with junior high students as well. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so I think it, there, there has to be some level of maturity and self-reflection in order to have real discussion and conversation in the group. Um, but let's just say high school for the purposes of our conversation. Um, it generally, we'll start with, uh, and nowadays because the community has grown and everybody's kind of into each other's lives and they're very close friends, we just talk about their week and what's going on in their lives and their week and such, and that's our discussion starter. And then uh, we might have uh, like an organized Bible study, and I'll pick a theme for the semester. Um, and uh, like one semester, we did Mary and spirituality, and we dove into the scriptures and really discussed how Mary's role in in the scriptures and how that, and then applied that into their prayer lives and such. Um, and then we usually pray as a group, and there might be a commitment exercise that they have to do for that particular week so that they're growing in disciplines for that week and habits, uh, forming habits of virtue, forming habits of prayer. Um, and some weeks we go and serve the poor together, or, or we pick up an, uh, an apostolate together as a group. And um, I've had groups pray outside of Planned Parenthood clinics. I've had groups put together mother-daughter teas in the parish. I mean, they, they kind of develop their own passion for a particular apostolate and try to start serving in that particular mm -hmm. apostolate together. Um, some weeks we pray together, we just go to the Adoration, I had a whole summer where my, my discipleship group just went to the Adoration Chapel in the mornings and then donuts afterwards. Um, and uh, the, the whole concept is just shared Christian living. Because mm. I've been, I remember in seminary, you know, we teach at like a local Catholic high school and I remember I was shocked uh, how lack of communicative or then communicability of a, like a young teenage boy. How do you get him talking? <laughs> uh, you play sports with him. <laughs> I mean, that's really, I had a, a group, when I started this concept and said, we're gonna start doing some small groups and I just started experimenting with it. We started like three or four in my already built youth ministry and I gave myself uh, so I, I took a couple of core members. I said, I, I want you to work with these particular teenagers. And I gave them like what I would call the easy teens, like the, the ones who should be uh, well along in their faith and really easy to work with. I gave myself the, the boys that were like on drugs. <laughs> and and I'm not that that's funny, but I gave myself like difficult, yeah. a difficult set of boys. And um, I found that for a good six to eight months, just to break down walls, we had to play sports together. Like, mm -hmm. So for the first half hour of our group meetings, we would meet in a location where we could throw a ball around or where we could um, play football or where we could shoot hoops or something of that nature, just to break the ice. Um, but yeah, I think it, some of it with boys, uh, because like you said, they're so um, slow, girls will communicate mm -hmm. like crazy. They, getting a conversation going with them is very easy. With boys, uh, I think a lot of the way they relate to each other are, is um, like, like a, you would call it parallel lines. Like boys would want to do an activity together. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to find a, a, a like-minded activity, something that they enjoy to break down the walls and get the conversation started. Yeah. And what did you find your experience has been like some of the challenges or questions maybe they have about the faith or what they want to know or what works with them? Yeah, I, um, one of the, I think the felt need of a, a young person is critical thinking around faith and beliefs. So when 
someone is a child, when they're like ages five through whatever, eight, nine, ten, um, they will believe whatever an adult tells them so long as they trust the adult. That's why children, uh, if you have young listeners, close your ears, but that's why children believe in Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really a ludicrous thing to believe that there's a man living on the North Pole mm-hmm. who lives on a diet of milk and cookies and has flying reindeers, etc. Uh, but they believe it because an adult tells them that. Um, once their brain hits a point of um, development, they, it, as they hit their, their preteen years and their, their teen years, their brain starts to develop critical thinking. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. That means they're, that they're um, brain is working and so then they start to question though do I really believe what it is that I've been taught Um, and this is the point when their their faith stops becoming their parents faith and starts becoming their own faith Mm -hmm. but the problem is if their questions don't get answered uh, so they start to question well is there really a God Um, do I really believe that Jesus Christ was a real person that he rose from the dead that he did miracles Uh, do I believe all the church's teachings on sexuality and morality and things of that nature if they don't receive answers to their tough questions they start to believe that there are no answers there are no good answers to their Mm -hmm. tough questions or they go and looking for answers in places where we don't want them looking for answers because they're going to get lies, uh, the lies of the culture, or whatever the case may be. Um, I have found that more times than not, if you talk to an adult who's not involved in religion or um, not involved in, in faith in general, or they left a religion or whatever the case may be, they're very curious. Uh, they love discussions about faith and, and re- relation. If you approach those conversations the right way, they will engage in those conversations. And I think that's because people have critical thinking around faith and beliefs, or want critical thinking around faith and beliefs. So um, young people have the gamut of questions. Uh, I always say, if you want a good discussion with young people, start talking about sex (laughs) or start talking about hell and the devil um, because they're very curious about things of that nature. Um, But, uh, you know, the spectrum of their questions can run the gamut. Um, The challenge is uh, most of our methods of formation with young people are not a structure where questions get answered. A classroom is not necessarily a, a place where they feel like they can ask the tough questions. Um, you need a trusting relationship with a person to really say, hey, why is pornography wrong? Like, mm-hmm. oh, I have this pornography issue. I don't see why it's mm-hmm. a, a bad thing. They're not going to bring that up in a classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not going to bring that up in a large youth ministry or a gathering of that. Those type of things are relational. And they'll share that kind of stuff. Like say you have a high-functioning small group, um, they would be that real with one another? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's why I actually, uh, my first book, so we, we mentioned the book that just came out, The Art of Forming Young Disciples. Well, my first book is a chastity book for men, um, which coaches people through pornography addiction and masturbation through a relationship with Jesus Christ, and it's rooted in Catholic teaching. Um, and that book's called uh, Freedom. Battle Strategies for Conquering Temptation. And I wrote that book because I had so many young men in these small environments that had these issues and it would come up. It usually took about two and a half years, I found, Mm -hmm. in a small group. So they had to really build trust with one another. But once they did, they would bring it up and then one guy would say, I have this problem. And another guy would say, I have this same problem. And next guy will say, well, I do that too, but I don't really see why it's wrong. And and I had had this issue and I, I couldn't find a book that coached them through it, so I ended up writing it myself. Well, let me, before we get back to that book, why don't, what is, uh, how do you get these young people to do this for two and a half years, meet? That sounds incredible. If, <laughs> if it's, if it's 
life-giving to them, they will participate in it. So yeah. there, there's this concept that, uh, this idea that young people are too busy, which is true, they're too busy in their life, but they will make time for the things that are important to them. Um, I usually, we don't realize it, but it, there's, there have been studies that have been done that uh, ask teenagers, what do you want more of in your life? And anything from money to you know education to a good job, whatever the case may be, uh, n over 90% said I want a meaningful relationship with an adult, most likely their parent. Um, it, it was overwhelmingly the top answer. For that, that's high school. Yeah, high school age. Wow. So there, there, there is a felt need for mentorship in their life because they don't receive it in our culture. Yeah. Um, they live in a peer-dominated culture. They may not never have through the course of their day a meaningful conversation with an adult. So I usually pitch to, the, uh, my process is I go to a parent, because parents largely manage the schedules of their teenagers. Um, so if a parent is on board with something, their kid is more likely to be on board with it. I go to a parent, I pitch this idea of a small group meeting um, of their kid and their kid's friends. I get that parent to help me organize this group, uh, the rest of the parents in that group. Um, I pitch it to all the parents, we pick a time and a date, and then I ask the teenagers, I go to them and I personally invite them to be part of this small group that meets, and I say, give me five weeks. All you gotta do is give me five weeks. And uh, we're gonna do this for five weeks, and then at the end of five weeks, uh, if you're not interested in continuing, um, by all means go your separate ways. And more times than not, the teens continue to participate because it's life-giving for them. They enjoy being with their friends, and the group is meaningful, and they start to get into meaningful conversations right off the bat, so. And uh, that's young men. Yeah, young men, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's, a f it's very much a felt need in youth culture for mm. there to be uh, uh, adult relationships, and I talk to teenagers all the time that are disengaged from um, their parish ministries, and I'll ask them, hey, why is it that you don't go to youth group? Ah, it's not really my thing, you know, whatever the case may be. If I invited you to go out to, to coffee or pizza or whatever with you and a couple of your friends, would you, would you come and do that and we can just talk about life and faith and whatever? Oh yeah, I would do that. That's what mm. they say. Wow. Because it, it, it's, it's their turf. Hanging out with their friends is very natural. And having an a interesting conversation with somebody is something that they would, uh, where they're treated like an adult, is something that they're very much attracted to. And are most of the youth in like your small groups that you're leading, are they from intact families or children of divorce? I usually a approach a strong, faithfully Catholic family first and ask them to help me organize um, their kid and their kid's friends. And those friends may come from not intact families or non-practicing families or whatever the case may be. So I'm, I'm using the network of the parents because parents talk to other parents to build trust with those parents and build a small group with their particular teenagers. Um, so I've had, I've had the gamut. I've had non-Catholics in my small groups. Uh, I've had uh, really, really faithful Catholic teens from really, really faithful Catholic parents. I've had kids from non-practicing families. I've had kids where their parents get divorced and I've been mentoring their kid for a couple of years and yeah. their parents end up getting divorced and had to coach the kid through that process. And, so you're you're in one parish in Denver. Yes. Have you have you is your program branched out into other parishes? Yeah. So um, so I work at a parish in Denver, uh, and I've been working. I, it's funny. I, I said uh, uh, I'd been out of parish ministry for four or five years, working in various apostolates, and I said to to the Lord that I wouldn't work for a parish again because it, it takes a lot of energy and commitment to work in a parish, and the Lord 
has takes a sense great of, faith. Yeah, right? it has, <laughs> the Lord has a sense of humor. So I've been working in a parish for this past year. It's been a blessing, uh, but I, I have a pastor that um, it, it, very much we see eye to eye in vision has given me an opportunity to, to build a ministry at his parish. And uh, so that's the parish I work at in Denver. But then in, uh, in addition to that, I run a nonprofit called St. Andrew Missionaries where I coach. Um, I realized that the concepts in which I pitch in this book, The Art of Forming Young Disciples, are not typical concepts for um, Catholic institutions today. And uh, youth culture is constantly changing, and our approach to youth ministry needs to continue to change with youth culture. And so often we get stuck in stuff that worked 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. CCD is 500 years old. Um, you can't continue to rely on the same methods when the culture constantly changes. So my ministry works with dioceses or Catholic parishes. I actually have a Catholic high school that I'm working with to build small discipleship groups or to change their approach to um, discipleship where they're putting mentors in relationship with small groups of teens for long periods of time. So that always, there'd always be one or two adults present. Right. Okay. Yeah, safe environment reasons you need. I, I want an adult in the life of these teenagers, yeah. and I want, and you really should need two for yeah. safe environment reasons. And it's just good for good practice to have two faithful adults. And so like for the young men groups, it's two men, or could it be a woman leading? Or? I believe co-ed groups can work. Um, I've led co-ed groups, but I, I think the, the best case scenario is to have men leading uh, boys and women leading girls. Um, and there's a reason for that. Number one, you remove all the, the potential attractive attraction mm -hmm. issues and different things, and boys will be more transparent with boys, girls will be more transparent with girls in terms of what's going on in their life. Girls mature at a faster rate than boys. Mm -hmm. Um, but in addition to that, I think boys learn to become men from other men, and girls learn to become women from other women, and they, they need those examples in their life. Uh, you're not going to, I, I had, was at a youth ministry seminar, and the speaker was talking about um, the importance of fatherhood in youth ministry, and a, a female youth minister got up and said, how do I, as a youth minister, teach my um, young, the young men in my youth ministry to, to really become a man. Like, what can I do? And he says, you can't. And I thought that was the most uh, insightful thing that <laughs> anyone had said on that topic. Uh, right. And he said, you absolutely can't. He says, it has to come from a man. Um, boys learn to become men from other men. And I've, in my experience too, like seminary formation, just growing up in my family and stuff, God will use, even though weak fallen people, lots of faults, God will use those men in ways in your life, you know, that uh, they might not have the whole package and all their witness of their life might not be the best, but there's certain things that will impress you, you know, as a young man. At least that was my experience, mm -hmm. you know. I, I'm thinking of like my uncles and stuff. Right. Um, that it was, they had a good impact. Uh, and, so. and for your listeners, I mean, if there's a single mom listening or a single father listening and, and they're like, well, I'm, I'm both parents for my children. I would, I would actually say, no, you're, you're just a phenomenal mother. Like, but you, you, can never, you can never fully replace yeah. what, what the other parent right. does. I mean, you just step up and yeah. uh, like provide in, in, incredibly. But there is something to be said for right. um, the example that a man can give to a boy and the example yeah. that a woman can give to a girl. Right. Now, Let's, let's go back to the mechanics of the group question again. So you have a high-functioning group. They come in, maybe yeah. at a coffee house. 
they kind of check in about their week, and then what happens? Uh, it depends on what we're doing on any given week, but uh, the core of what we do is, is study. Uh, like I love to get into scripture with the boys, and so we, I might have a scripture package, a passage or a study picked out for that particular week, and we'll dive in. And I usually have about four or five um, Socratic method questions. Uh, an organization that I used to work for, Why Disciple, we wrote all of our leader guides with Socratic method in mind. So rather than asking questions that are um, have a right answer, like uh, what is the church's, what is the four pillars of the catechism? That doesn't get a discussion going. Mm -hmm. We ask questions that get a discussion going. So, um, and so what, rather than asking, you know, what is the Holy Trinity? That, that's a discussion killer right there. Yeah. <laughs> you, you might ask, uh, you know, and this, you have, you this particular... Answer? Do you have answers for these? I mean, I couldn't yeah. answer that question. Well, no, I like could, <laughs> yeah. But those are questions that I would never ask in a small group. Yeah. Uh -huh. But, like, I would ask uh, teenagers, rather than asking, like, what's your opinion on chastity? That's mm -hmm. a discussion killer. Um, but it, I would ask, hey, so your friend Katie um, is thinking of having sex with her boyfriend. And uh, what's and she comes to you for advice. What what would you tell her? That immediately every person in the group has an opinion on that, mm -hmm. um, and that gets a discussion going. And we relate that back to chastity. So the whole discussion. Uh, my my role is a facilitator to pose a question related to the topic that we might have read in scripture, or related to a virtue that we might be studying and um, get a discussion going in the group and you get different opinions and sometimes those opinions aren't don't line up with church teaching but I actually love it when that happens because I get to push back on it a little right. bit and we get right. great great discussion going those discussions can go for an hour sometimes they go 15 minutes or whatever the mm -hmm. case may be and then usually we have a, a discipline at the end of this that I'm say okay this week I want you to focus on the habit of whatever you know right. now what would you tell the, like, the young boys about chastity and pornography what are some things that you found worked for them to help them oh gosh how much time do you have <laughs> um, <laughs> there's uh, uh, I think the, the the first thing that has to be presented when you have um, young men who struggle with chastity is the truth uh, and so you have to present what is sexuality in all of its glory like what was it created for um, that ultimately it's a you know, lust is is very enticing. It's a very attractive thing, uh, lust at, at first, until um, you get trapped in the sin, and then it's too late. But it's very attractive at first. So you have to present something that's even more attractive. And I would say love is what's more attractive than lust. And so you you, you pitch them this understanding of, of love and and sexuality and and how it all fits together and, and to communicate. Um, that sex is, is a commitment of life giving love, that's a great responsibility, um, that it, it, it can give glory to God. Um, you paint the whole vision. And, and you know, that's my two minute spiel on sexuality. But th then, then you have to acknowledge that um, there are things that fall short and you explain why pornography falls short and whatever the case may be. Um, and if the boys will be transparent with you and say, I have that problem, mm -hmm. and you know, I have a personal witness that goes along with it, so I'll share my personal witness with the boys and say, you know, when I was 16, and you can read about it in, in my book, Freedom, but I had a pornography addiction. It was actually my, my realization of this addiction that led me to Christ, mm -hmm. um, and it was my conversion story. So uh, I'll tell my story and relate my story, and that gets guys talking. And then I say, if you're trapped in these sins, 
first thing you have to do is go to the Lord and ask for healing um, and realize that people get caught in all kinds of addictions because they have a wound that is likely unrelated to that particular addiction. So if it's one thing, if it's a bad habit, those are easy to overcome. But if somebody is frequently in the habit of pornography and they find they can't break that habit, it's because there's something deeper there. And um, what you have to come to identify is, Lord, what, are, what is my wound that I'm feeling this, this need with? Or, or this desire with, or this sin with. Uh, um, and if you come to that, then you present that wound to Christ for healing. And then you start to work on all the different habits. You need a filter on your computers and um, learn, learn to pray within temptation of lust so that uh, you don't fall into masturbation and things of that nature. So uh, there's, there's a whole process. Uh, and that's yeah. largely what my book Freedom is about, yeah. is taking them through that process. But um, well, I think like the alcoholics say that Drinking wasn't the problem; it was the solution right. to the problem. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's it's like uh, uh, you know, you go to the hospital and you got a, a broken leg, and and uh, you say, "Well, all I need is medicine." Well, that doesn't fix the problem. Mm -hmm. You might numb the pain of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, you get it on Oxycontin and whatever. You'll be right. like, yeah, "I don't have a broken leg." But no, the the leg's still broken. You got to <laughs> fix the leg. Right. Now, let me ask you, how long have you lived in Denver? Uh, eight years. Okay. Yeah. And what, you know, Denver seems to have, a, like, this special quality of just, you have, you know, World Youth Day, was it 93, mm -hmm. 92, and, uh, and just so many apostolates, like, it seemed like a... A ton, a ton yeah, of apostolates, like that, yeah. Yeah, you have, like... Focus and what's that? We had them on the group that did mission, that work in downtown Denver. Christ in the city. Christ in the city, mm -hmm. and you know, why disciple the Augustine Institute and, and all this stuff. And Dow and, and uh, Dow. families of character, and yeah, I could go on at Creatio. There's uh, John Paul II camps, uh, Camp Boitila, yeah. um, and I could go on and on. Yeah. I mean, there, yeah, one of the reasons why is that ministry breeds ministry. So you have somebody that leaves Focus or leaves the Augustine mm -hmm. Institute, but they don't leave Denver, so they just start a new ministry. Mm -hmm. But it really, the the whole thing started with World Youth Day in 1993. Um, you know, John Paul II was knew he was going to the United States for World Youth Day and they pitched him three or four cities and he said no to all of them and he he said I, they said well Holy Father where do you want to have it and he looked on the map and he said Denver that's and just because he liked the mountains yeah I think that was part <laughs> I think he was like I can get a ski trip in on this <laughs> that's um, just part <laughs> I mean, he actually uh, the mountains were part of it he wanted people to go to a location where they could see the glory of God in nature um, and the mountains are in the backdrop of Denver um, but I think there was a wisdom there too. Denver was is now a hot spot for young people, and young people start movements. Like just culturally in the city of Denver, there's all kinds of young adults in Denver. Um, I, I feel like the average age of my parish is like 25. Um, so it's just young people everywhere. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so World Youth Day started a huge spark there, and really was a birthplace of, of the new evangelization, at least in America. Um, and then. Honestly, I'll, I'll credit Archbishop Chaput had an enormous impact on Denver as well. Cardinal Stafford before him, but Archbishop Chaput um, just was a magnet for ministry. Yeah. He had a tendency to say yes. Um, he brought in all kinds of religious orders to Denver. Um, people came to him with ideas. He said, yes, how can I support you? And 
uh, ministry breeds ministry. You do good ministry and more people are gonna be attracted there and more good people. And uh, yeah, Denver's kind of a magnet for apostolates and starting apostolates. Uh, I started an apostolate there and I'll tell you, it's a little bit of a hard market to start an apostolate in <laughs> because, because there's so many ministries and apostolates that it's hard to stand out. But there's, it also Satan seemed like has raged in Denver, you know, with Columbine, with the theater shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like there is a lot of satanic activity you hear about. Yeah, Boulder, is, Boulder, Colorado is the witchcraft capital of America. Yeah, um, yeah Colorado's an interesting state. So we have legalized marijuana, which is yeah. an evil. Yeah. Um, which coincidentally I was talking over dinner with somebody and said it's actually legalized marijuana has attracted a lot of homeless people to Denver, which is why now we have ministries like Christ in the City that minister to the homeless uh, Mm -hmm. at length because um, a lot of people have migrated to Colorado because there's legalized marijuana. Um, You know, we have school shootings are very satanic in nature. Uh, The evil that it brought about in a community Columbine. It's funny, I would actually say that Columbine High School is one of the most Catholic schools in the Denver area now because the Catholic Church in that area did so much work with Columbine students for healing mm-hmm. uh, that, that they built an enormous youth ministry out of it um, and that school has a just a ton of faithful Catholics in, in the school mm-hmm. now and in, in that local community. Um, it's a public school. It's a public school, yeah. yeah. Uh, but but it, there's a Catholic parish right down the road, St. Francis Cabrini, and it has the largest youth ministry in our archdiocese, about 300 students involved. And they're all in small discipleship groups, which is what I advocate for. Um, so it, it's it's really interesting. Yeah, we have great good there, but great evil. I the There was a, another high school shooting in our area um, just a couple of years ago, Arapaho High School, which was also on the national news. That's in my neighborhood. That's a block from me. So and I live 20, 30 minutes from the school, uh, movie theater shooting. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, you're right. It's interesting that there's, um, where there's great good, there's great evil. And, and where there's great evil, there can be great good. And you have boots on the ground. Um, what, what do you see the impact of legalized marijuana on youth? What has been the fruit of that? Um, it's, it's a bit difficult to say because those who were smoking marijuana before, it, it's no different for them. They're still smoking marijuana. Those who were not attracted to marijuana um, because they know the dangers of marijuana were not, um, are still not smoking marijuana. Um, I don't necessarily see an increase in usage but then again, I don't run in the circles with mm-hmm. people who are big marijuana users. Um, it's more public. Uh, you can see somebody walking down the sidewalk and they're smoking a joint. Um, but I, I would say the most difficult thing with young people and legalized marijuana is making an argument to them of why it's wrong. Because now that it's legal, they're like, well, why is it still wrong if it's legal? Like, what uh, makes it different from alcohol? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, the, like it's a, uh, trying to make a moral argument when they have such a legalistic mindset mm-hmm. of if it's legal, it must be moral. Right. Um, right. It, so it is it, more difficult now than it was before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it just means I, I don't mind stuff like that because I just feel like it, it ups our game in ministry. Like yeah. now rather than a young person saying, uh, you know, a young person, we, we're in the state of Alabama right now doing this interview. If a young person came to you and, and said, no, you wouldn't give this answer, but if they said, why is marijuana wrong? You say, well, it's legal and you should follow the law. 
that's an incorrect answer. Yeah. Um, you're making a legalistic argument rather than a moral argument. Well, in Colorado, I have to make a moral argument. Um, I have to explain why, as St. Thomas Aquinas said, um, it's a grave sin for a person of intellect to intentionally numb their intellect uh, because it's a sin against God in your in image and likeness. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we have to up our game in ministry. I would say that's the biggest, the biggest difference is that we now have to still make a moral argument against something that's legal. Yeah. So and it's a contradiction. And just the studies, too. I read that it, it really, with the young person's brain especially, like, in the teenage years, it supposedly really messes up their brain structure. Mm -hmm. um, has a greater impact than on adults. And, uh, I'll say from experience that, um, if, from sp speaking to marijuana users, they tend to be great defenders of their right to marijuana, and that marijuana isn't damaging and it helps them in so many different areas, et cetera. They, they tend to be the most difficult young people that I minister to. And, and I think that in large part it's because their capacity of reason is hindered. Um, and they're addicted to a substance. They're dependent on that for whatever it is they're using it for. Um, I find that it's very difficult for them to make a commitment to Christ um, and put their whole heart into it when they're addicted to a substance. So I've just found in 12 years of youth ministry that marijuana users tend to be really difficult to minister to. Yeah. I know, I, I felt like, there's a few times in this culture where I felt like I'm an old man out of touch. And that was one of them, to see the President of the United States, you know, backing this and fully supporting this. And I remember my first thought was, as if our, young, our youth did not have enough trouble. Right. Let's just throw a bunch of drugs at them. Right. I thought, this is insane. Right. <laughs> but. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, it, the world, well, it's becoming a relativistic world. Um, if it wasn't, wasn't already, it's becoming even more so. Um, where we don't make moral arguments anymore. The idea that you would make a law um, to try to stop somebody from hurting themselves is foreign. Yeah. They're like, well, if it's, if it's good for them, let them do it. Right. Uh, if they're okay with it, yeah. um, let them do it. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, sometimes you have, I mean, you put laws into place to prevent people from doing things that they otherwise would want to do. Like, right. I don't need a law that tells me not to kill somebody because I have no desire to kill somebody. Like, we have a law against killing somebody so that those who want to kill somebody mm -hmm. hopefully won't do it, and we can punish them if they do. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, if somebody wants to do drugs, let them do it. No, we have, that's not healthy for them, and it's not healthy for our culture. We should have laws against it right. to prevent those who are doing drugs from doing it. I have no desire to do drugs. Yeah. I don't need a law. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. And keep Boy, we, we hit all kinds of uh, different tangents. <laughs> Started from youth ministry and went to drugs. I don't know how we got there. All right. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you.